Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Dr. Parsley served as a Navy SEAL during the first Gulf War. He was tasked with being the SEAL team physician for the West Coast SEALs. And really, after the realities of eight years of nearly continuous combat, were beginning to weigh on the SEALs. And Dr. Parsley was tasked with optimizing and maintaining the performance of the most incredible and toughest men in the world. He was struck by the disparity between healthcare and actually health. During this time, Kirk was forced to learn an enormous amount of alternative medicine, the alternative treatments in medical literature, synthesize and apply it in a way that was both effective and practical for the SEALs to maintain peak performance 365 days a year. There is so much that we can learn from Dr. Parsley. He's worked with thousands of elite performers and has had tremendous success from the physical to the cognitive to emotional performance. And in this episode, we talk all about ways in which you can perform to your most optimal, peptides and other strategies for peak performance, and finally, the importance of sleep on training life and overall wellness. Please take a moment to rate, subscribe, share this episode, and let's dive in. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a great sponsor for the show and especially for this episode. Whether you are a veteran or non-veteran, your brain is designed for fight or flight. We have a warring brain and how we experience our mind affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and energy to keeping your brain and mind healthy. And there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain like therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy. And I have never met a patient who regrets speaking to someone or who regrets therapy. Again, whether you are a veteran or non-veteran, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, is an online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than an in-person therapy session. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. My listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. That's betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. And I've had some family members use this who absolutely love this. This company is very responsive. They have email sequences, really, really well done. So if you want to be a better version of yourself, head on over to betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. Special thank you to Cozy Health for sponsoring this episode of the show. I have been using Cozy Red Light for quite some time. Here is how I use Red Light. I put the big panel on. I sit there for 10 minutes. I sit about four inches away and I hang out. I read. It really helps with my skin. It helps with my mental cognition, the way I focus. 
really helps my body. I swear it makes me perform better at the gym and recover and really anchors my sleep-wake cycles. There's been a lot of research over the years on photobiomodulation, which is exactly what red light therapy is. Cozy makes an amazing product, EMF-free from four inches away, non-flicker. They will give you a 60-day money-back guarantee on every product that you purchase, and customer requests are responded to within a few hours. If you don't want a red light, well, you should have one. They also make incredible light bulbs. So we use their day and their night light bulbs all over the house to really help improve our environment for optimal health. Cozy Red Light is offering my listeners 10% off your first order. Go to CozyHealth.com slash Dr. Lion. That's CozyHealth.com slash Dr. Lion. Dr. Kirk Parsley. How'd you like that intro? Great. That's all I need. Mean. I'm so excited. That's a wrap. Yep. Yeah. So that was a great podcast. Yeah, great. Uh, we talked about a lot of things there. I'm so grateful to have you on. Um, you are a former Navy SEAL, physician, friend, colleague, uh, overall amazing human. Well, you're going to make me blush. Yeah. yeah. I'm a SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I enlisted right out of high school. Um, actually dropped out of high school to join the Navy and went. You dropped out of high school to join the yeah, Navy. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that makes it sound more romantic than it was. I actually, I went to four years of high school, but I was only a sophomore by credits at the end of that. So I just left. Were you not a good student? Never. No. You're, was it just boring? I started getting D's and F's in third grade and barely just, I think kind of got pushed ahead by my classes. Just didn't have any interest in school. But um, you're a highly skilled physician highly trained SEAL and you got D's and F's and dropped out of, finished four years of high school and dropped out. Well, I had, so I had a very dysfunctional, abusive home life that kept me up till one and two in the morning with the cops at the house and all that stuff. So um, a lot of coming and going, like moving in with relatives and, you know, so it's just, it just wasn't a good environment to be a kid. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of re rebelled at school. That was the only time I had any safety or fun was at school. So I didn't want to waste all that time reading and you know, that makes sense. Filling my, and plus, you know, like I said, a total blue collar, like redneck families, like book learnings for sissies, you know, like if you want to be a man, like you learn to be a mechanic or a welder or offshore fish, you know, fisherman or something. So I just didn't value it. Um, and I still didn't value it when I went to the SEAL teams, but then, you know, you have to go through, in, in my day, you had to go get a job before you go to BUDS um, because mo almost everybody fails. And so you have to have a place to go back to. Meaning a job in the Navy, like, in the Navy. like a corpsman. Yeah. Or so I was, I was a gunner's mate. So I had to go to uh, basic electronics school, electric, uh, electronic and electricity school, and then uh, gun school, which a bunch of hydraulics and all this stuff. And um and I graduated at the top of my class at all those. When I joined as a SEAL, nobody knew what the hell a SEAL was. Like when I joined- How I, many years ago was that? I mean, you're only 25, so- uh, 1987. Yeah. yeah. And like literally when I came home to see friends and relatives and I'd tell them a SEAL, I'm a SEAL, they, they had no idea what that was. They're like, is that like you work at SeaWorld? What does that mean? You're a <laughs> SEAL. Um, and so we went from kind of like this dirty dozen ragtag kind of 
misfits that we think we can keep out of prison and direct towards something useful. It was kind of how the SEAL started. Um, I mean, they were like the grubby troublemakers, people with authority problems and all that, but moral flexibility, you know, <laughs> that you could capitalize on. Um, and after, uh, you know, after a while, they started gaining notoriety, especially, you know, post 9-11 and after bin Laden and all that stuff, when well, SEALs became kind of like this celebrity status. And so now you have people with master's degrees coming in as enlisted because that's the only way they can get in because it's so competitive to get there. However, the attrition rate never changed. It didn't matter how many people you sent there. When I went through BUDS, your, your class maybe started at 150 people. But they have 300 person bud classes now. And guess what? It ends up the same size. How it's many, like it's everybody. 18? How many usually get through? Um, it's it's about um, any anywhere from 10 to 15 percent will graduate, and most of those you lose by the end of Hell Week. So you lose a lot on the way to Hell Week, and then you lose a lot. You lose a lot in Hell Week. Um, you know, we we're just watching a video the other day of this buds class right here on the corner. Um, and it was like right before Hell Week, and it, it just went on forever. It was like a train running by, <laughs> and then they and then it does a little SpongeBob one week later or whatever, you know. And then like twelve guys come jogging through, <laughs> like two guys limping in the back. Uh, so like the attrition rate never changed. It didn't matter what they did. They um, when I went through training, you weren't allowed to fail anything. Like you failed. So there was no you, medical you, rollbacks or anything. No, they they just started medical rollbacks. Um, I think they started that the year I came in. Um, and before that, it was like, you break your leg, whatever. It's like, come back in two years. That's the way it worked. Um, but, you know, I remember, I think the first week you do um, part of the drown proofing where you, you do, a, you have to do a flip off the side of the pool. And then no matter how you land, you can't come back up. And then you swim to one end of the pool and come back. And if you come up, you quit. And if you pass out, you fail. And so you lose like 30 people and like, and it's like, we're four days into this. Yeah, like, yeah. like, how are we getting, right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, like the, the attrition rate, it, it just, it's, it stays the same because I think it's, um, it's the people, the only people who pass that are literally people who are willing to die over fail, willing to die over quit. That's pathological. I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't be thinking that at eighteen years old. But every everyone I know who succeeded was that way. They're like, I mean, I remember plenty of times thinking, I'm going to die, but at least I didn't quit. Here we go. <laughs> you know? And so in the military, when you're the dumbest guy, they put you in charge and they say, <laughs> they say, you're, well, now you're going to supervise everybody that knows more than you. I'm like, oh, great. Um, so I had and the whole point of that is there's that hallway that went between rehab and my office was in there, and so all the guys who came into rehab or in the bridge gym, they'd drop in my office and they'd shut the door and go, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. Because you know the community, like the worst thing you can do is put them on the bench. So they don't tell their doctors anything. They lie, they lie through their teeth um, because they don't want to be disqualified. Even if they're really struggling, they're like they're gonna go outside and pay some private healthcare provider to help them before they're gonna tell the doctor as a team. Um, but because I'd been a SEAL, and I'd been a SEAL recently enough to where there were still a lot of guys that I'd been a SEAL with, that I'd been through SEAL training with, or deployed with. And I, I had a good enough reputation where guys trusted me and they'd come in and say, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. And it's all performance, right? They didn't have a single disease, but 
they weren't, you know, they weren't, a str- you know, they're, they're getting weaker and fatter. They're getting slower. Like they had poor control of their memory, their cognition, their emotional control, all that type of stuff. Uh, weren't sleeping well, eating exactly what the nutritionist was telling them to do, working out exactly how the strength and conditioning coach told them to do and getting worse. Like the biggest thing is they said they weren't motivated, right? Which is totally unusual right. for this and group so of people. And so they're still SEALs and they're still getting out of bed and they're still doing it, but they don't feel like doing it. And it's like drudgery. And they've been doing it for years and they've just been hiding it. And so they come and they just lay this bomb on me, right? And it's like, well, you know, I can't think straight. I can't remember. I'm moody. I snap at my wife, snap at my kids. I can't pay attention during lectures. I'm giving a lecture. I can't remember. I can't pay attention to my own lecture. Um, you know, I... I, I can't sleep worth crap. My I'm getting weaker and slower and fatter despite doing everything right. Um, like I said, can't can't sleep well. Libido issues, performance issues, perhaps in that area as well. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't have any idea, right? Like, I don't know. It sounds like you're an old man. Like yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're, are you a fat old man? Because you don't look like you are. Um, and so, you know, being a Western trained physician, I hadn't. I literally had no idea. I'm like, it's like. I don't know. So I just tested everything I could possibly think of. Just Which like, was very unusual at the yeah, time. You were, yeah. I have to say, you were very much at the forefront and you yeah. were doing hormone testing and all this testing before anyone, yeah. before, before human optimization even was human optimization. Right, right. And it was, like I said, it was just purely by design because I was just like, what can I find? And so when I get the labs back, being a Western trained doctor, like, well, I want to fix that. But they didn't, Think technically have disease, right? Out of a testosterone of 250 to 1100, they were 257, right? But they were 28 or 30. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, that's not normal, but to an endocrinologist, it's normal. So they don't have disease. So they're not going to get treated for that. Plus, anything you give them on, any medication you give them that they, that they require, that disqualifies them. Because what if they can't get their meds? They can't be out. They can't In be, Afghanistan they can't be forward deployed and not yeah. be able to get their meds and now they can't operate. So, um, Did so you I, start seeing patterns where? Yeah, so it came in. Everybody's every anabolic marker was low, every inflammatory marker was high. Insulin sensitivity was like pre-diabetic, and these guys were, you know, fit dudes. Their cortisol was either off the chart or unmeasurable, but nothing normal. Um, you know, inf- inflammation high, oxidation high, everything catabolic high, everything anabolic low. So anything you can think of, IGF-1, you know, testosterone free, testosterone, DHEA, like everything anabolic low, everything catabolic high. Um, and I wanted to fix it. You know, all, their thyroid was all marginal, like a okay. TSH of 2.2, 2.7, something like, not quite disease, but not, it's not optimal for sure. Um, and I put a guy on on thyroid once and he got disqualified. And I was like, all right, I'll never make that mistake again, you know? Um, Cause you know, I had him on nature thyroid and I thought, well, that's, that's not a big deal. He can miss five, six, seven, eight days of that in a row. But for it's them, not, it, was, but a for them it was a big deal. So I felt horrible about that, you know? Um, so I'd never did that again. Uh, and then, so I'm like, well, you know, what can we do? And um, I started thinking, well, you know, uh, I've heard about, maybe this before, like in previous war, you've heard of shell shock and combat fatigue. I'm like, well, maybe it's that. Like, so I start looking into that. Nobody ever figured it out. They don't know. So I'm like, uh, maybe adrenal fatigue. So I started, you know, reading about that. And the great thing was because I was the West Coast 
doctor or seal for the west or doctor for the west coast seals i could just call anybody up and be like hey i read your book can i come train with you or saw your ted talk or whatever yeah. and and everybody fumbled over themselves to be helpful like it never had anybody turn me down on that so i got to learn a lot super quickly and so i was, I was kind of much mutsing around with uh adrenal fatigue and I was giving like Myers cocktails and adrenal support supplements and Cortef tapers and things like that. And I get shut down by Bureau of Medicine because I'm practicing outside of my scope and I get investigated and all this stuff and like get my hand slapped and like, hey, you stick to what you do. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> what I do is what these guys need. That's what I do. What you do is what these guys need. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, just kept going with that. Um, and then, you know, maybe three, four months into that struggle, six months into that struggle, um, because of something a patient said, I come up with the idea. I'm like, well, I wonder if, I wonder, and you'll identify, this sounds stupid now, but you'll identify, like, you know, think back 10 years ago when you are a doctor before you knew all this stuff. I was like, well, I wonder if Ambien could be affecting any of this, right? Because they were all taking Ambien. Right. Every one of them were taking Ambien. I was like, and then you look at the literature and what does the literature say? Ambient's totally safe. There's no side effects. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And I'm like, hmm, seems hard to believe. Uh, but Ambient had just recently been sued, um, you know, because they caused that, that dissociative fugue and people go to Vegas and gamble away their houses and pick up prostitutes and, you know. Just a regular Friday night. Yeah. No. Um, and so uh, I... I started looking into Ambien and, you know, I'd, I'd taken pharmacology. I knew the mechanism of action, but I didn't really know what the hell that meant. Like, what is it? Okay, it's a GABA analog, but what does GABA do for sleep? I don't really know. So I had to start learning about sleep. Once I started learning about sleep, I was shocked. So I was like, oh, every single thing they're complaining about could be explained by poor sleep. Now, I didn't think it would, but it's like it could. Like, every single thing they're saying right because you were restricted right you were not able to put them on hormone therapy i couldn't you put them on hormones had issues with cortef for people who are listening cortef is um a basically bioidentical yep. cortisol, cortisol really yep. it's essentially what it is um and so but, but that was a taper right so it's like it's only two weeks so it's like that wasn't i wasn't putting them on any uh anything that was sustainable as long as they're back in the states and they're doing that's a temporary course that was right. fine um but i couldn't give them hormones but what I could give them was DHEA, and I could give them a Remedex to block the conversion of testosterone to estradiol. Which you probably which don't even really use anymore, do you? I do sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, there's lots of things that I could do that wasn't technically giving them hormones, but it was causing them to increase their hormones. But the biggest mover I had was getting them off of Ambien. Um, because, you know, for anyone in the audience who, any of your listeners who don't know, like all of your hormones are reset while you sleep. Like every single night, all of your hormones are rebalanced during sleep and primarily during deep sleep, slow sleep cycles. When you first go to sleep, that's when you flush out all the adenosine, flush out all the waste products, and then all of your hormones start getting measured and your pituitary starts sending out the signals to balance everything through the feedback loop so that you're ready for the next day. And, um, you know, it turns out because Ambien had been sued, we got we got to, you know, they had to lift up the kimono and we saw, we had to see all their literature and they knew this all along, right? So they knew that uh, Ambien decreases 
REM sleep by about 80% and decreases deep sleep by about 20%. And alcohol does the opposite. And you know, the SEALs, you know, if one's good, two's better, three's great. So they're taking way more Ambien than they should and taking it with beer or cocktails, whatever. And they're going to sleep and they're really passing out. They weren't sleeping. They were unconscious for four to five hours. They're waking up and going, can't get back to sleep. I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to work out really hard. I'm not going to take any breaks. I'm going to work all day. And then when I come home tonight, I'll be really sleepy and I'll sleep well tonight. And they've been doing that for four years or something. It hasn't worked yet, but they're <laughs> right. still, they're still they're trying. Still, yeah. Still trying. And I'm like, all right, well that, you know, keep going, I guess. Like I, and I didn't have a solution. So, um, so I said, well, what can I, like, how can I get these guys off of Bambi? And I couldn't just say, suck it up, buttercup, right? They're just right. going to go get Ambien from someone else. Um, and so I, I did a lot of education and explained to everybody why it was bad. And I motivated them with testosterone and growth hormone. Like, you're, like you know, one night of poor sleep is 30% lower testosterone. It's 30% lower insulin sensitivity on a lot of tissues. It's 30% lower growth hormone, higher inflammation, higher oxidation. Like, just explain to them why they, why they need to sleep. Because it's not a culture... No, that value sleep. It's not a culture that values. And neither is medicine, right? So I'm like, <laughs> right. two worst professions yeah. you can come up with. Um, and uh, so I started motivating them for that. And then I, like I said, I, as I was getting them with Bambian, all I could think of is just like what supplements help. And so I just did a bunch of research and, and I just gave them a handout. So like, go buy this, go buy that. And they were having to go buy it all everywhere. Um, and we did that for like three years. And then, um, of course, when I left the teams, then I left a total vacuum because they just put some other doc who's like ready, waiting, he biding his time to go back into residency. And he's just like doing sick call stuff. Um, and I kind of destroyed my career because I got shut down and investigated so many times. There's no way I could stay in the Navy. Just because you were really trying to do right by the guys. Yeah. Well, because I wasn't listening to the leadership. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if, if I was better at politics, maybe I could have smoothed it better, but I was just like, if you tell me I can't do it, I'm just going to do it without telling you. Right. And that, that was because like, I'm here for them. And if you kick me out, that's fine. Like, I, I really don't care. Like, I don't really enjoy the Navy to be <laughs> honest, but I enjoy working with this population. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and so then the, you know, the SEALs kind of harangued me into making that because they were having to, it was, you know, it was a pain in the ass. They had to go buy it. You know, it was pre totally. pre Amazon. They're having to go all the all the different health food stores, and this came in a ninety day supply, and that was a thirty day supply, and that was a liquid, that was a powder. These were capsules, and it was just like, dude, we can't travel with this. Can you make us a product? And so that's that's how the supplement came about. So you made a, a product, and did you find that the testosterone levels increased? Yeah. So once I got people off of Ambien, now I didn't just. I didn't just get anybody off of Ambien and say, that's all I'm doing. So everybody I was getting off of Ambien, I was also supporting their hormone production. So I was giving them DHEA. I was either giving them, you know, depending on their levels, I was giving them maybe zinc citrate as an aromatase inhibitor, maybe like a pharmaceutical aromatase inhibitor. Uh, you know, I was giving a pregnenolone pathway, like, you know, direct direct pathway for all of that. Um, like I, I was doing everything I could to support and drive everything in the right direction. Like I said, doing Cortef tapers. Um, uh, and I, a lot of times I gave like short courses of nature thoid or, you know, some sort to really of really help jumpstart. Yeah, start just the, to get everything right where I wanted it. Like just make it happen. Um, and of course I got in trouble for that over and over again, but just doing that. So just taking over the counter supplements, 
and starting to sleep, valuing sleep, getting rid of alcohol before they slept, not That's taking not taking Ambien, three four hundred percent increase in total testosterone, free testosterone, doubling of IGF one. CRPs went from three point six down to unmeasurable. You know, that's incredible. Um, Just like all of the stuff, yeah, because they were already healthy guys. I mean, right. they were healthy, robust, strong, hardworking, motivated dudes who are eating right, working out. Like, mm-hmm. like they're overtraining for sure, but they've been overtraining for so many years that they were pretty well adapted to that. Um, and uh, you know, I had guys, I had guys in their forties coming in saying. I PR'd today on like this lift or this this run or this O course or whatever. And they didn't mean they PR'd for their 40s or they PR'd, you know, recent yeah. like my entire life. Like I've never been this fast or this strong my entire life. With and then and because of that group is one hundred percent focused on performance, that it's my job now to understand performance. And so anything that comes up that's cool or exciting or any kind of new developments in the performance world. I get, you, to, I get to get really smart on it really quick. So let's talk about that because uh, you've been involved in peptides and hormones way before they were a thing. Yeah. I would love for you to mention some of the peptides that you think are really effective because, you you know, I consult you with, with patients. And just most recently, I had a patient that really wanted to go on growth hormone. And right. I called you and I said, listen, this guy, he did pass his growth hormone stim test. There's no clinical indication for him. What am I going to tell him? You know, he's hearing a lot of things. Yeah. And, you know, you and I talked about some peptides right. that were beneficial. Yeah. So I'd say um, peptides kind of fall into um, a few categories. So um, I think what most people know about them is like the body comp aspects of them. Um, and one of the one of those big ones, obviously, Um is something, you know, what's called a secretagogue. Uh, and secretagogues will, uh, so any t- obviously anytime you give a hormone, you run into the, one, you run into a tachyphylaxis problem if you're over, like if, you know, because you're pulsatively giving these big doses. For the listener, will you explain what? Yeah. What that is, yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, when, you, when you give, when you give the body more of anything that it's used to seeing, especially hormones. So hormones have receptors. Um, and so if you put a thousand times more hormone in the body, your body is a smart machine. It's not going to, it's going to, well, we have a thousand times more than we need. So we only need one one thousandth of the receptors, right? And so over time, you just all your receptors decay. And now, if you ever take off that super dose of hormone, now you and you have a normal amount. Well, now you have a deficiency of because you have so few receptors that it, it's essentially like you don't have as much hormone. Um, and so it's always dang well uh, dangerous. It, it's it's uh, it's always tricky to give hormones in a intelligent way to where the body, uh, where they're close enough to being like a daily pulsatile dose, which growth hormone is better than say like testosterone. Most, most people don't do testosterone every day, but most people do do growth hormone every day, but it's still like this big super physiologic dose that then kind of decays over the day. And, and you're getting these big boluses instead of these steady little pulses through the day. Um, and so anytime you're going super physiologic, well, what it, what does that happen? What happens? What do you know? Or like, what what's going to happen? We don't know. Like, I don't know. It's like Over that doesn't exist right. in nature, right. so I don't know. So when they say, "Well, growth hormone uh, increases your risk of cancer," like exogenous growth hormone, it's like, okay, probably because it's a growth hormone and it's causing you know um, a bunch of cellular division and growth, and so I could see that. But your body has a feedback mechanism that says. 
we operate well as long as growth hormone isn't higher than this. And so you give us a cretagogue and that just has your brain. It just leads to your pituitary secreting more growth hormone, but the feedback loop is still in place. So you can't give somebody so much growth hormone or so much secretagogue that they're going to go super physiologic because their, their feedback loop is just going to shut it down. Um, and you can do similar things for testosterone, right? There, there's peptides that will help you increase your testosterone production. Uh, there's nothing for thyroid yet that I know of, but that would, that would be nice to have. Um, and, you know, then, and then there's, uh, you know, say like, uh, like epithelon is kind of like a balancing of all your pituitary hormones, right? So it's like you do that. And so that, that's sort of like the body calm performance thing. Um, and then there's, there's peptides that work great for everything neurological. And of course our communities yeah. have thousands of TBIs, uh, PTSD, whatever, um, it turns out that chronic sleep deprivation damages the brain in a very similar way to t to TBIs, and nobody has PTSD without brain inflammation and brain dysregulation. So it's all kind of the same mess, and it's all treated the same way. So I don't I don't try to discern which is right. which, you know. But um, you know, say something like cerebral lysin, like that's sort of a, a rebalancing of all neurotransmitters. And how does that it's, work? It's very so? it's very new. Uh, so there's there's lots of things that are what we call neurotropic, right? So you have, um, of course, we used to think that you're born with a certain number of brain cells and that was it. And like those just died over the course of your life. And there's no way to regrow them. Doesn't turn out to be true. You can grow new neurons. What's going down is the growth factors, right? So the, the most common one's kind of like a brain derived neurotropic factor. And then there's something called glial cell derived neurotropic factors. And they kind of work on different aspects. Um, and then there's something called VEGF, um, which helps vascular growth. And so you, when you have a brain injury, what ends up happening is you have inflammation and that inflammation creates pressure. And then that pressure prevents blood supply or CSF flow or whatever. Um, and so if you aren't getting nutrients and you aren't clearing away waste, then that brain region starts decaying. Um, and so anything that's going to decrease inflammation, which that's kind of the other category of peptides, things that work on your immune, immune yeah, cascades. Um, and there's lots there. And then there's lots of things that help with uh, nootropic growth. So, so like, um, you know, like the cerebral lysin, like I was saying, and then there's, you know, C-Max and Selenc. And you like, think those, they work well? They do, and every everything everything kind of has its pros and cons. So, like, uh, Selenc is a great anxiolytic, for example, and that's a nasal spray, so people don't have to inject it. So it's more acceptable for a lot of people. It's a great anxiolytic, but it also helps with growth factors a little bit in the brain, and so it'll help you restore a little bit like that. Testosterone and growth hormone actually increase VEGF, right? And you'll actually and BDNF. Um, hyperbarics increase that too, but while we're staying on peptides. So, um, and then there's C-Max, which is kind of the opposite of Selenc. It's really good at growth factors. Um, and it has a little bit of anxiolytic, possibly slight nootropic benefit to it. Um, and there's something called dihexa. Dihexa is a great anti-inflammatory for the brain, which also increases VEGF. So you get new vascularization. Um, it helps with, it helps with brain derived neurotropic factor. Um, and glial cell derived. It's the only one I know that does that. Um, the most powerful for that is 
the entheogens or psychedelics, that actually increases the growth factors more than anything we found so far. Interesting. Are, is the dose on CMAX, Selenc, Cerebralycin important? So Cerebralycin is, is it IV or IM? Um, Cerebralycin is IM. And very difficult to get. Very it's difficult. very difficult to get. You, uh, is it Armenia or some Austria? Austria is where is <laughs> close. That's where we've been getting it. Is Austria very difficult? To um, get. It, it's hard to get. It, it used to be readily, readily available when I first started doing peptides. It was it was as, as easy to get as, but that's when everything was easy. You know, it's like yeah. you could get you could get epithelon, you could get MOTC, you could like you know you could get. True license and like it was all easy to get, and then yeah, you know, they keep cracking down because those aren't those aren't FDA approved for use. They're FDA approved for research. Right. But what I'm doing is clinical research, essentially, right? Because I I'm not saying I know like here's the diagnosis and this is the treatment. I'm saying hey, the performance here isn't what we want it to be, so we're going to experiment with these different nootropic sort of. And I'm not saying nootropic, but neurotropic. Yeah. So like helping the brain grow, uh, helping the brain repair. And again, you're not treating, I mean, I guess in part there is some treatment of disease processes, but you're not. It's a disease process, but which not, is, but it's not a diagnostic exactly, code, right? So it's like, exactly. I'm not saying you have disease. Um, you know, and, you know, to back up a step, when you give a secretagogue, say like CJC, epimorelin or something, um, there's kind of two different ways to secrete growth hormone. It doesn't, it's not really an important distinction for this, but, um, you know, that one works really well. Tessamorelin works better. And, um, and how does tessamorelin work? Uh, also the same way, the yeah, same pathway? Yeah. So, so all the, all the morellins are, uh, gorillamimetics, I believe. Um, and so sermorelin and tesmorelin and ipamorelin, uh, all of those uh, fall into the same uh, category. And then um, they'll, they will elevate, the limit will be the feedback loop of your brain, but they won't all necessarily reach that. Like I haven't had any success with sermorelin, but- Same. Uh, but CJC ipamorelin is good. Tesmorelin was the best, but apparently that's too long. And because it was too many amino acids, they shut down the production of that. And you can't get that anymore. Because um, the FDA is always changing. DEA is always changing the rules about it. And for the, sorry to interrupt. And for the listener, one of the the ways in which if a provider is giving a patient CJC and Ipmorlin or Tessamorlin, if they can get it, is IGF-1 will go up. Right. And which, then how? Which is the downstream marker of yes. growth hormone. Um, and then, you, you know, you make sure that they don't have a bunch of carrier protein that's defeating it, whatever. Um, but what I was going to say is, you know, you do that and say, let's say you're doing it for, say, general um, anabolic effect or something, right? Well, it turns out that that's growth hormone. So it, it helps with the brain function. It also helps with insulin sensitivity, right? And so... Um, but if you give, say, something like MK677, which is the oral, really old, like that impairs glucose sensitivity or insulin sensitivity. So, uh, do you like it, MK677? No, really? No, I mean, it, the effects of it are amazing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> so it's my, a butamorin for the yeah, listener, and it's yeah. actually a, it was originally used as an oral. Um, it, it's not a peptide, it's an oral um, secretagogue right. that uh, works on ghrelin receptors. Right, And right. I think they gave it to kids to yeah. increase growth hormone. Yeah, and so I have a, I have a son who 
I have two sons. Um, one is six four, around three hundred pounds, and his older brother is five seven and one hundred and thirty pounds. And so he was really bitter about that. And I'm like, well, let's see what we can do. <laughs> yeah. So, so we gave him MK six seven seven, and he and he gained like twenty pounds of muscle, um, but he didn't get any taller. Um, and uh, but then the dog went away so fast, and and that's that was awful for insulin sensitivity. I mean, it's like you do that for three or four months, and you're essentially a diabetic. I mean, not. It's, hyperbole but you know you right. can you can it affects receptors if you stay on it for yeah long you can of stay time on like that it. for too long whereas like yeah. the testamorelin and cjc have been around those types of things like i haven't i haven't run into that at all in fact i continually see people's insulin sensitivities in, increasing because they're exercising more and they're more anabolic they're maintaining more muscle mass they're eating better like there's other factors but i haven't seen but i've, I've seen people definitely on mk677 just like 30, 40% increase in their fasting insulin, you know, and over a so, period of time. Like, yeah. Pretty, pretty quickly, you know. So um, it, it's something that, you know, there's always like, I'm, I'm not above, the, you know, somebody using stuff for vanity. You know, it's like if you, you want to like pack on some muscle to go on your vacation. But what you're saying like, is okay. that um, MK677 has very short acting right. results. Right. Basically, it does increase um, muscle mass and right. it does increase hunger. It works on right. colon receptors. Right. And it does increase water weight. So the biggest side effect that we've seen um, is that it increases substantial amount of water weight. Substantial amount of water weight, which um, goes away really quickly. Does, and then people think, does. oh, I lost it all. <laughs> like, eh, you never really had that. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you're bloated, uh, but you still gained, you know, you yeah. still gained maybe. I mean, let's face it, as an adult, if you can put on, three to five pounds of muscle, you've done something amazing. You, you have. Know? Like that's a lot. And I, and I do think um, a lot of individuals uh, do that the, the hormone replacement can be done well and it can be done poorly. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear some of your perspective on starting dose, right. um, how you think about testosterone replacement. Um, you know, so they have injection, which is intermuscular, sub-Q, um, there's pellets, there's oral now, mm -hmm. which it's like this resurgence of oral testosterone, which I don't actually use in my practice. Yeah. I don't know if it's too hard on the liver in my opinion. So, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the first, you know, the first thing that I do when I, when I find somebody who's, you know, let's say somebody's completely naive to, uh, treatment, um, would you I'll, say most of your patients, because uh, you have a very select patient population now, aside from the team guys, um, would you say most of them, when they come to you, are they hormone naive or they've been on well, some I, kind of? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, by that, I meant naive to treatment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, yeah, so the vast majority of my private clients have already been on it and they've been really poorly treated. And most of them don't really do it anymore. If they do do it, they do it with apathy because they don't feel anything from it. Because that whole thing we were talking about earlier with the tachyphylaxis, right? So they're it's, much too high of dose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very common for an endocrinologist to put somebody on like 200 every two weeks or 300 every two weeks. It's like, that's ridiculous. Like, um, so, you know, the testicles make somewhere between 75 and 125 milligrams a week in an adult male. So that's kind of what you want to replace, right? And doing that, that would be, so what I shoot for when I'm doing hormones is, um, yeah, there's all these bickering, you know, science bickers about all sorts of stuff because this, this stat, you know, this study says this and that study says this. And so now we got to rethink everything. I'm like, where's the case study in life? Like, where's the big case study? So when they start telling me, well, 
you know, test you give people testosterone, you're going to increase their risk of prostate cancer. I'm like, really? So that's why 25 year olds have prostate cancer <laughs> all the time. Or same with estrogen for females, right? You're going to cause breast cancer. It's like young women have a lot of estrogen. Old women have very little estrogen. Who has breast cancer, right? So I'm not. I'm not saying that there's no correlation there. I'm just saying you haven't fleshed this out. So what I shoot for is like a 25 year old version. If, if I showed your lab to somebody, I went and said, who do you think this guy is? They would say a fit and shape 25 to 30 year old male, right? Like that's that's what I'm shooting for. Now I'm not gonna make you 25, but I'm gonna give you sort of the physiologic resilience, the closest physiologic resilience you can have to that. Now, and we both know 80, 80 to 90% of all your success is coming from your lifestyle anyway. What I'm doing is a bridge, right? I'm, I'm helping you, I'm, I'm supporting you do it. So the first thing I, I assess is how old are you? What are your levels? And do I think that I can get you there without testosterone or without giving you hormones? And the reason for that, like you just think about how volatile everything is politically, how volatile everything is legally, medical legal. What if you can't get testosterone all of a sudden, right? Like, what if what if production is so low that like the supply chains down, or what if the DEA comes and really cracks down on it? But you've been on testosterone for five years or three years, and now you can't get it at all. Do you right? think it's a possibility that could happen? I think it's a low possibility, mm-hmm. but there's also traveling. You know, there's also sort of an unexpected, you know, travel trip. Maybe uh, you know, people get caught up in their business bankruptcy and divorces and you know death of parents and family members with cancer or whatever and they just get kind of caught up in this world and they're totally out of it for three four months um and so my thought is um you know let's say you come in and you're like 50 percent of 60 percent of where i would like you to be where what number kind of you your think? your yeah. 25 well so that's an interesting thing so um i think it's around 2000 somewhere between 2006, 2008, the, the chair of endocrinology at UCLA, uh, he took the bell curve of that 250 to 1100 and broke it into quintiles. And the upper quintile, so out of 1100, it goes from 250 to 1100. So basically the upper quintile is somewhere around 825-ish up to 1100. The upper quintile, when ooh, it's been so long since I read the study, but it was, it was done over a long time, 10 years, at least maybe 20 years, pretty big study, multiple centers, UK, uh, East Coast and West Coast. Uh, and what they found is lo- the morbidity, mortality risk was the lowest in, in testosterone, independent of everything else, right? Every quintile you go down, your risk doubles. Of so morbidity and mortality. Morbidity, mortality. Mm-hmm. So death from any cause, any disease doubles each quintile. If that were anything else, it'd be medical malpractice to not keep people in the upper quintile. There's tons of issues of but yes. because it's people, you know, professional athletes use testosterone to cheat in sports, well, we gotta control that. Yes. You know, it's a, that's that's a scheduled drug. And we gotta be really careful who gets that. And we don't want to overtrain, right? Um, but you know, if that was vitamin C and we we had those same we had that same result for vitamin C, they'd be like Every you know you're going you're losing your medical license if you let somebody stay in the fourth or fifth quintile, right? Whereas you think about the fifth quintile, you're 16 times more likely to die from any cause or get a disease, any disease. Like that's ridiculous, right? So I go for the upper quintiles, the 
long way of saying that. Um, and so I'm, sh I'm shooting for the, that upper quintile. I really care more about the free than the total um, because the free is what's available. And, the, and so if I, if I think I can get somebody up there, um, and that's kind of a clinical, like I, I couldn't give you like definitive guidelines. It's, it's a lot of stuff that I, I like, what's their lifestyle like? How healthy are they? How hard are they working out? How are they likely to change any of that? Um, you know, have they been on hormone replacement therapy before? Do they have any brain injuries I think might be a pituitary stalk issue? Do they have any testicular injuries that maybe that's causing this? So there's a lot of art to that bit right. of it. Um, but my thinking is, well, if I can support your growth, uh, your growth of testosterone production through supplements and pharma that isn't actually giving you the hormones, mm -hmm. so it's giving something like a, a an LH analog, like in clomiphene or clomid or something like that, but giving you the DHEA pathway and the zinc citrate or remedex or kind of whatever we're doing or blocking DHT conversion, whatever, but we're giving you things that's enhancing your ability to produce. So you're very you, conservative. Your loop, conservative your feedback loop is still going to prevent you from going too high. And then if, let's say you do that for six months or a year, and then you say, Doc Parsley's full of crap. I don't uh. want to listen to him again. You're better off than the day you met me, right? And it's going to take you years to decay back to where you were. Whereas if I gave you testosterone for a year, and then all of a sudden you can't get it, or you're, like you're traveling too much, you're going to a country where it's like illegal to bring it in there, which that it does exist, even if you have a prescription. Um, there's just complexities there, or for some reason we can't get it, right? Like mm -hmm. it just, you know, it gets too hard to get, uh, becomes prohibitively expensive, you lose your job, or you know, like who knows? All those um, things. And so it's like, if I can get you through, and, and what I find, I mean, I have a, 61, 62 year old guy who does conservative treatment and he is like a, a total testosterone of 1,000, 1,100 all the time, right? Now he's he's rare. Yeah. yeah he's, he's rare. I know Clomid, do you, so you use Clomid, you're using Clomiphene and do you use it the standard way? So whether it's 25 to 50 milligrams, I, three so times a week. So Clomid I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, but just because that's so long acting. Um, I find uh, there's a lot of emotional ability with that. So if people, you know, if guys are sensitive to that or prone to that, or that's yes. a big issue for them. Uh, and then uh, and then there's also a fair bit of uh, complaints about visual changes with, it, with Clomid. So that's my second choice drug. But, you know, the, the game with compounding pharmacies, like it's like you're taking Clomid, Clomid now, or you're not going to start in Clomiphene for eight weeks because that's how long it's going to take right. to get it. Um, and so, like, that's a whatever, clinical judgment call. But, and Clomiphene I prefer. Um, and you just take that before bedtime. It's short acting. You get your night. Every day. Yeah, you get a nighttime pulse. It's essentially out of your system by the time you wake up. So you don't have to worry about any of that other stuff. And if you think physiologically, if we weren't doing any of this, 90, 95% of all the testosterone you're going to make is going to be made while you're asleep anyway. So if you're supporting that during sleep, just like the same thing with growth hormone, if you're supporting that during sleep, who cares during the day? Like the day's going to carry you through it, right? And what's the dosage on enclomiphene? Um, What are those, 20? 20, 25, mil, 25 milligrams, yeah. So it's different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I haven't used it in the clinic. We typically just use Clomid, but we do have the same responses. People yeah. say the same thing that... Yeah. Um, uh, especially with the emotional liability. I mean, some of them, some I mean, guys I, get- I've, I've taken yeah. Clomid and, you know, we'd be doing this podcast and I just, I was like, have to keep myself from crying for some reason. Like, 
I have no idea why. Like, I'm not saying anything emotional, but all of a sudden it's just like I get tingles, like I'm super emotional. And, um, and I, and I've seen that with lots of, with lots of guys. Um, and guys, you know, and, you know, stoicism aside, there, you know, there's certain guys that just aren't really prone to crying. It's just like, that's not how they think about that's, the world. That's yeah. not how they emote. That's not how they process information. And even those guys, like some, a lot of times those are, the, those guys are the worst. Yeah. Uh, and then that, like that's a big deal to them if they're somebody who's frequently presenting or, you know, in a leadership role where oh, they're sure. right. So, and is the mechanism of action, uh, the same? Yeah. I mean, um, and, and clomiphene and is really, is really just the, the more potent racemir of the two. Okay. Um, and it's, and the half-life is way shorter because obviously the ineffective racemir is one that sticks around. Right. right. And so, um, and I can't remember if it's left or right, but whatever it, mm -hmm. it's the, it's the more potent one. Um, yeah. And it goes away really quickly. And then, um, I, and then like seven keto DHEA given instead of DHEA because because of that that seven keto group it can't convert to estrogen and it can't convert to DHT so it's only it's a testosterone or nothing kind of pathway um, and then you know because of the cortisol steel I give a pregnenolone direct pathway you know the the thing that um, I think is re really goes unappreciated is obviously all the sex hormones are starting with cholesterol. Um, and then, you know, to get to testosterone, it's like 17 steps, mm -hmm. right? Probably every one of those intermediates are active, right? There are probably some biological reason for every one of those intermediates. And, and we know four or five, like those four or five that have been studied, and we know that those work, but probably all of them. Um, and maybe it's just a few seconds, but like you're losing something. And so even if I have somebody on testosterone, I always support the back pathway as well because I mean, maybe maybe you're only getting ten percent of your testosterone, twenty percent of your testosterone from your testicles. At least we have all those intermediates in there, right? And not knowing what they do is like smart to have them around, right? Yeah. So let's let's keep, let's maintain it as well as you can. And then the other thing that does is again, if they ever quit taking testosterone, they run out while they're on a trip, whatever, and they're doing other stuff, they can you know they can still mm -hmm. maintain. They're not going to crash, right? If you're giving it exogenously, you know. And, and you're like 100% of their production is dependent on how much is coming out of that needle. And they stop that. I mean, that's a big crash. I mean, yeah. guys can feel like unable to get out of bed within mm. a week, you know? Um, so that's a big, that's a big issue. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. I absolutely love Inside Tracker. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's inside your body. And listen, things are getting extremely advanced and the world is moving at a very fast pace. You should absolutely know what your blood markers tell you. It's super easy. Test it, you get results, you take action, and then in three to six months, you can retest and track your progress. Biomarkers are very critical to understanding what's happening. They've added ApoB, which is really important for cardiovascular risk. They have insulin, CBC, iron, all kinds of things that are very critical for you. And Inside Tracker is offering my listeners 20% off their entire store. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You can check out the ultimate plan, the inner age. You can get a bundle. Really, this is a phenomenal company that was designed by scientists, physicians, geneticists, 
people that really care about moving the needle for you and your health. And most important is that you have the capacity to do something with the results that you're getting. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon. Thank you to Firstborn for sponsoring this episode of the show. If you are like me and the kids are home for summer, you definitely need a kick in the pants for a pre-workout. Megawatt is an amazing caffeine-enhanced nootropic pre-workout. They have cherry blast, a melon flavor, all different kinds. This product has B6, B12, choline, huprazine A, things that really help get you focused. It also has a handful of phytonutrients, which I think are very valuable as it relates to lowering inflammation. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. You can get a one-time purchase to try it out, and then you can get a subscription. Really amazing product. Again, I have been using it for quite some time. Do not take this later on in the day because it will keep you up. I also suggest that if you are to try it, just try a little bit. It is a great boost for any workout. Again, if you are sensitive to caffeine, this is not going to be your go-to. And of course, as always, talk to your physician before adding any new supplementation. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lyon and check out their megawatt pre-workout. What about um, stimulant type protocols, whether that you've used in the past or that you see a lot of the guys use, um, just in general, whether it's you know the nicotine, caffeine, bright light stack, loud music, right. just in terms of short bursts of cognitive performance? Um, yeah, so I mean, I've, I've used everything, you know, from pharmaceuticals, nootropics, uh, over-the-counter. I mean, I think, like, uh, over-the-counter, I think caffeine and nicotine are a no-brainer. I mean, it's just everybody's afraid of nicotine. Cancer. Actually, it has, it's it, like it's, it's, it's better for you than caffeine, but, yeah, it's at, least, it's, it's at least as safe as caffeine, if not safer than caffeine. And I think we should take a moment there. Nicotine, there's some evidence to support. So, yes, it is addictive, but there is some evidence to support brain function. Right. Um, there is evidence to support uh, appetite suppression. Right. There's all kinds of positives. I think that the poison is in the dose. And obviously, we're not talking about smoking cigarettes. We're talking about. Right. Uh, and, and so I'd like to address that. Uh, yes, sir. So, you know, Ken Ford. All right, uh, rents IHMC, one of the smartest guys I've ever known. Um, and I was in his office, I don't know, I was doing a lecture out there five years ago, something like that. And I was chewing nicotine gum and he's like, oh, I can't believe you're doing that with Rob. And he's talking about Rob Wolf. I'm like Rob Wolf, that's the last time I saw him, he's popping that <laughs> stuff like that. Yes. And he's like, that's so addictive. I was like, no, it's not addictive. He goes, it's the most addictive compound on the planet, nicotine. I'm like, come on, because I know, like I chew nicotine gum on a regular basis and I go overboard sometimes. Like, you know, I just don't think about it. It's really for the flavor or whatever. And I mix it with regular gum and I do low dose, but like I'll get totally out of hand with it. And <laughs> you don't say, but, but then I just but like, I'll like, I'll burn through what I have and then I just won't order anywhere. I don't get anymore. And like, I totally forget about it for three or four months at a time. It can't be that addictive because right. I just, I totally forget if I don't have it. If I don't see it, I don't even yeah, think yeah. about it. Um, so anyways, that is a delivery mechanism. So if you inhale nicotine, it is the most addictive substance. If it's 
passing through buccal membrane, it's not even close. It's not even in the top 200 or something. Uh, caffeine's probably more addictive um, psychologically, right? But yeah, so I, um, what we actually did um, kind of working with people, uh, you know, because what's really common in the SEAL teams is essentially not sleeping for four days, right? Because you you get a mission tasking, you got to plan it, you got to, you know, prepare, load out all your equipment, go to your mission, come back. I don't know. It sounds like having a newborn baby, but yeah. okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but it's 20 years of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, uh, you know, the, the endurance, sort of cognitive endurance um, while sleep deprived is important, right? So... Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, listening, the adenosine is what builds up. So eight, every cell in your body works off of ATP. That's the energy source. That's triphosphate. You take off one, die, mono, and then it, just the A is adenosine. And that actually causes sleep pressure, and it binds to, uh, to receptors in your brain that says, hey, we've overused ourselves, right? It's time to go to sleep. So what most people don't realize is that being awake is essentially catabolic and being asleep is anabolic. It's almost, it's almost that cut and dry. It's not quite, I know it's oversimplifying, probably upsetting some people, but I don't care. Um, so when, while you're awake, your brain is actually developing, like you're, you're depositing, um, beta amyloid plaques in your brain every day while you're, while you're awake. Now, whether or not those take root and actually start forming plaques, depends on how well you flush that out. And so, um, you know, the adenosine is building up is causing that, is causing that sleep pressure. Um, and then, you know, every cell is obviously producing waste products. So when you go into deep sleep, the glymphatic system, right? So that's like your, your, uh, your structural cells that hold, you know, that sort of form the shape of the brain, they just contract about 30% and the CSF flushes out all of the waste products. Um, and it, even flushes out adenosine, but it flushes out um, uh, amyloid as well, beta amyloid. And so you're, you're really damaging the brain by staying awake and not sleeping. So uh, when people ask, you know, can I, is there a sleep debt real and can I like pay it back? Can I, can I sleep all weekend to make up for not, can I sleep 24 hours in a row and make up for not sleeping three nights in a row? No, you can't because you've damaged yourself and that beta amyloid has built up and it's caused plaques, right? And it's caused, and so we are hurting our brain. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, shift workers die prematurely. They have a much shorter lifespan, way higher risk of all, all diseases and mortality, all mortality, all morbidity. Um, and so when you're, when you're doing um, stimulants, we're doing stimulants to get the job done, but we're not we're not doing anything about the problems, right? Like you still you still need to get your sleep, you know, the best you can. But what we what we found, and and I so for that reason, I try to use like the mildest thing that I can because once I once I start giving you you know, if I start giving me Adderall or, or Modafinil or something like that, well, I'm revving up brain function while you're staying awake. I'm consuming ATP though, right? And I'm building up adenosine, which I'm essentially building up sleep pressure. So now as those start to go away, you're getting worse. Um, same thing with caffeine, caffeine blocks. Caffeine doesn't actually stimulate the brain. It just blocks the adenosine receptor. So you don't feel as sleepy, but when that wears off, you have a normal amount of adenosine, but not a heightened amount of adenosine. Um, and so what we found is like 60 milligrams of caffeine, uh, 
and two milligrams of nicotine or one to two milligrams of nicotine, depending on tolerance. Um, you do that every four to six hours and you can sustain pretty amazing cognitive levels, right? If you just do caffeine, yeah, it no. lasts like six to eight hours and then you're, you're way dumber. You're like, you're worse, you're worse off than if you did nothing. <laughs> way dumber. You are. Yeah. Uh, like your attention, your problem solving, all that, that goes down. You're actually better off in the long run. If you're going to be at for 48 hours, you're better off with no stimulant whatsoever over caffeine because caffeine only carries you through this first six to eight hours and then you get worse way faster. Um, and I don't know exactly the mechanism for that. But anyway, to get back to the story, uh, I think caffeine, nicotine, no brainer. Uh, I think alpha ketoglutarate, um, no brainer. I mean, that that just works, yep. man. Um, uh, let's see, what else? I think for over over the counter. What about methylene blue? Have you ever used methylene blue? I haven't. I haven't messed around with that much. I definitely it, think it works. Um, I, I, uh, I downloaded an audiobook on methylene blue to learn about it. I don't know. We we're we we're driving on a road trip maybe a year ago or something. And it was so awful. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I can't listen to this, and I just never got <laughs> yeah, back yeah. around to it. Uh, I've heard great things about it. I've read a little bit about what 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 little is known mm. about the mechanisms. Um, uh, and I have anecdotally, I have a lot of clients and yeah. uh, seals and other patients who've told me that they get great results from it. Um, so if you were to use, say, a stimulant, if you were to use modafinil or Vyvanse or Adderall, do you think that there is a strategy to use it where the repercussions are mm -hmm. not great? Is there some kind of uh, so the key, protocol? The key to any stimulant um, would be to, to use it as early in the day as possible and to go to sleep as early as you can that night. Because what you're essentially doing is you're, you're accelerating all of that damage that's going to be done. You're celebrating all the waste products and you're accelerating the adenosine buildup and all that. So you need to be, you need to figure out a way to take that as early in the day as possible and then get to bed as early as possible and sleep as long as possible. Um, and I know a lot of people are using it because they aren't getting enough sleep. And I, I understand that, but, um, and then I, I, I would say experiment with milder things, you know, um, like I think uh, like, Adderall would probably be my last choice. Um, yeah, I know you're not a huge fan of that. Um, one, just because it's so pulsatile. I mean, even even the XR, but it's it has such peripheral stimulation, right? It has like so much jittery and sweatiness and um, you know, peripheral like eye movement, like and it's it's just like a it's a I feel like it's an overstimulating kind of crack. It I mean, dopamine. We've yeah. even I've even talked to you about you know does it affect prolactin levels? Are there things that it right. potentially impacts that? Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I don't discourage it if, if people use it already and they like yeah. they want it, they want to keep doing it. Um, yeah, but I, I like I like atomoxetine. That's um, Stratera. Um, uh, I like uh, Pitolisant. Mm. Pitolisant. What, what, I, I have um, never used that. So that. Uh, that that's basically a histamine analog and histamine is alert weight promoting. Um, and it, well, it's either histamine analog or it's a histamine agonist, whichever, but mm -hmm. it, it works, it works like histamine. So you don't feel the peripheral stimulus jitteriness. Um, I think Vyvanse is, is a, it's a good drug. If you control the dose, it's really easy to go really high with that. Um, 
but that that seems like a good one for like actually lasting through the day. Like my my experience with, I mean, let's, I mean, Adderall's methamphetamine, right? I mean, it's essentially um, it's like doing meth, right? It's like it has it has a huge peak and then a huge valley, um, and I think it's just really hard to kind of calculate the right dose to where you're alert as long as you need to be alert and then it's gone so that you can actually get quality of sleep. Because one of the things that all the stimulants are doing, um, even caffeine, but, but not nicotine. Um, one of the things those are doing is those are, those are increasing your adrenals, right? So you're secreting more epinephrine, more norepinephrine, more cortisol. Again, those are all catabolic. Um, and so if your catabolics, AKA stress hormones are high, when you're trying to go to sleep, even if the drug's gone, if that's high, well, the the lowest uh, the lowest cortisol will just stick with cortisol. Uh, all all of them matter, but the lowest cortisol you'll have in a 24 hour period is during deep sleep, and your your first sleep cycle is almost all deep sleep. So that's the lowest cortisol you ever have. That's the lowest catabolic state you'll ever be in. The highest anabolic state you'll ever be in. The adenosine causes the sleep pressure. You can still go to sleep with really high stress hormones if the sleep pressure is high enough. Right. But then, as soon as you, as soon as your glymphatics push all out the waste products, um, and you rid yourself of some of that adenosine, as soon as you come back through wakefulness to go into your next sleep cycle, you'll just wake up because your stress hormones are so high. Um, so it decreases the quality of your sleep and it decreases the depth, like how much, like how slow are the slow waves, right? Are you, like, are you, um, are you getting all the way down into the three to five Hertz range? Or are you kind of staying up in the upper end of that, not getting as much growth hormone secretion, testosterone secretion, like all of your appetite, neuroregulation of appetite, ghrelin, leptin, all of that's being set thyroid even like everything's being balanced during that period and if you if you're if you have too high stress hormones then that's impaired and it's no different if let's say if if you have say 30 percent higher stress hormones than you need then it would be ideal to have and to be clear stress hormones aren't bad like they get the bad rap what they do is they keep you alert in proportion to your environment right now we're not doing anything stressful so they aren't super high but if you mean that my interviewing you is not stressing you out? <laughs> no, I am. I'm super. I'm, I'm super. Um, but you know, if, if somebody starts banging on the door really loud, or a car hits the building, or something like, all of a sudden our stress hormones are going to go really high. So they keep you alert in proportion to your environment. So we want to have them around, but they're supposed to wake us up in the morning and then progressively get a little higher till about midday, and then progressively go lower and and then be low enough for us to fall asleep, and then go really down to allow us to be really anabolic and repair, restore, replenish, even our immune system's balanced during all that. Because your immune system is essentially the anabolic repair system as well, right? So you're like, you're balancing all of that during that deep sleep. So if your core, if your stress hormones are too high, you're impairing that. If you don't sleep enough, like, in, you know, it takes eight hours to recover from being awake for 16 hours. This is the way the world works. Um, and if you only sleep six hours, you've lost 25% of that. Well, if you sleep eight hours, but your stress hormones are 30 or 40% higher than they should be, you're probably doing the same as if you slept six hours, right? And, and you had normal stress hormones. But the problem is also that if you don't repair completely, like the whole point of me going to sleep tonight is to repair everything that I've damaged, like flush out my beta amyloid, flush out like all the waste products in my brain, like all my, all my interstitiums, like get rid of all of the waste products, replenish all my, 
all the nutrients that my cells need um, and then prepare for tomorrow, right? So prune my brain off and like get myself optimized for tomorrow. Like my regulation, my appetite is going to be, today's going to be used as a template to like how hungry I am tomorrow, what I like when I'm, what nutrients I'm going to need and all that. Um, and so if that takes eight hours and I only do six of those hours, well, then I, I didn't repair and prepare all the way. And if I could, if I could go to sleep and repair and prepare a hundred percent, I wouldn't age, right? I'd wake up exactly the same every day. And so the fact that I cut 25% off, like I'm choosing to age 25% faster. But the, the reason I'm talking about that is if I cut 25% off and we know it takes eight hours and I only slept six hours, well, tomorrow's still going to come in exactly the same thing. All my, all my responsibilities are going to be exactly the same yeah. tomorrow, whether I slept or not. So what, how do I compensate? I compensate by secreting more stress hormones. And now my stress hormones keep getting higher because I'm not getting enough sleep, but my stress hormones get high enough, they impair my sleep. So now I can't sleep. So it's a whole I cycle. I can't sleep because I'm not sleeping, essentially, right? And so yeah. I'm not sleeping enough, so now I can't sleep because my stress hormones are too high. And every time I don't sleep well enough, my stress hormones go a little higher. Hmm. And that becomes this vicious cycle. And that's what that's what you see in the White House. When the, when the guy becomes president and he looks young and healthy, and four <laughs> years later, he looks like he's 15 years older. That's what that is. That's just constant stress hormones. He has like, he's almost in fight or flight 24 oh, hours a day. Right. Probably. Yeah. And are you, do you find that you are very strict on sleep, wake times, knowing all this information or is it, cause you are a very driven individual. Yeah. Um, do you find that hard to follow some of your own I mean, studies? I, I mean, I, I, I think the whole world works off the Pareto distribution now. It's 80-20 rule. It's like the the whole point of living the right lifestyle and eating the right way and exercising the right way and controlling your stress and taking the right supplements and doing the right hormones. Like the whole point of all that is to be resilient. You have to have the stressor to be have some you have to have something to be resilient against. I and so like agree with you a million percent. I mean the irony is uh, I would say 80% of my sleep lectures I'm giving while I'm sleep deprived, right? Because I'm traveling again, <laughs> like I'm getting in late and I sleep at some hotel and I get up and like whatever. Um, but the whole idea is like, I, I'm gonna do everything the best I can all the mm -hmm. time, but 20% of the time my efforts are gonna suck. There's just gonna be too much to compensate for. Um, but if I can do, you know, if I can do most everything right 80% of the time, like that's that's the whole key. Like now I'm resilient enough to handle those periods. Nah, you've always been that way, I think. My my guess is that you've always been well capable to handle those. Well, things. when we're younger, we're all more capable. But the older you get, the fewer. Well, good news is you're the oldest person in the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, Brandy. Um, yeah. So, do you think that uh, are you interested? Is there any new kind of anxiolytics? Any new compounds that you think are coming out or are going to be the next wave? Um, I, you know, I actually think, uh, my favorite an anxiolytic is actually C-Link. Like that, that seems to work better than anything else I've tried for people. Um, as far as a pharmaceutical intervention, um, and is C-Link considered a peptide? That's a peptide. And that's yeah. intranasal peptide? Intranasal, you know, yeah. Intranasal peptide. Um, and I don't think you can overdose on it. Um, it's it's expensive, so that's usually the limiting factor mm -hmm. on it. But um, so, I mean, you have, you have the beauty of that, right, is that you have something that's decreasing your anxiety while it's also 
it's neuroprotective and neuroregenerative, right? So you're actually improving your brain while taking those. Um, and then, you know, I don't know how, how your audience will re, uh, find, how accepting they'll be of this, but the best anxiolytics out there are the psychedelics. Um, They're very open. We had um, Kelsey Sharon on talking about okay. uh, all yeah. of her work with the psychedelics. She was a female gunner. I don't know if you know her. She was on Jocko's podcast recently. Yeah. Very open. I would say my audience is interested in new and evolving science. Yeah. So the the this isn't quite correct, but um, for simplicity, simplicity, we'll say the the category technically all those kind of fall under something called entheogens, which is basically like uh, Theo is God, right? So it's like how you know God or something like that. Um, but everything that's in that category. So you have, uh, say, starting with the simplest. So you have like, say, MDMA, and then you have ketamine, and then you have, it's uh, so like DMT, 5-MeO, DMT, uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca, iboga, or, or ibogaine. Um, all, all of those has very similar effects. The big difference is the duration. So, um, if you do, if you do a ketamine infusion, which I I prefer is the way to do that over IM because you can control it. You can dial it up and down. They can say hey, this is too much. You can turn it down. Right? You can turn it off if they're if they're having a bad time, uh, and if they aren't feeling anything, you can turn it up. Right? So it, it's I think it's a really good way to introduce people to it. Ketamine clinics are all over the clinic or all over the country. Like yeah. you can that's access. You know, it's easy access. It's legal. Um, MDMA is not far behind. That's going you know, that there's a lot of clinical use for that now. It's a little harder to get into, but, um, the, what all of those things do apart from drastically increasing all the neurotropic factors in the brain and the vascular decreasing inflammation, all that great stuff they do is they, de <clears throat> they decrease amygdala tone. So the, the amygdala being the little <clears throat> alarm system in your brain to tell you what's a threat and what's not. And as you know, in, <clears throat> in the SEAL community and, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, first responders, law enforcement, all that same thing. Everybody is hypervigilant, right? Well, that hypervigilant has a price, right? It, it, um, I, I don't know if you ever saw them, but for a while back in, I'd say like the 90s, early 2000s, there was this big it's just kind of this big push for these really elite guard dogs that they cost like $30,000. But um, they were these highly trained dogs that they brought and they put, I mean, wealthy people obviously are buying this. So they put them on your big compound, your mansion, whatever. But they just walk around with your kids and you and whatever and like no chance they're ever going to harm anybody in the family, but super aggressive if there's any threat. <clears throat> Those dogs live half the lifespan they're supposed to live, right? Um and that's because of hypervigilance. So we have this, we have this, you know, read, well, both sides of our brain have it, um, part of the limbic system. And they, that's like kind of our, our emotional and alert system. And so when we see a threat, so like genetically imprinted into us as a snake, right? So like the movement of a snake, a, a toddler's afraid of that, right? Like they get a stress response from it. Um, heights, probably the stripe pattern of a tiger, certain eyes, certain teeth, you know, something like that. Um, you know, all, all of those things cause a stress response in us. And then the longer we live and the more kind of danger we see and the more bad things we see and the less we trust our fellow man and the world and all that, 
the more things stress us out. And then our, like our cell phones are a stressor and traffic is a stressor and bankruptcies and divorce and like all the stuff that we consider normal life. Those are all stressors and they're causing amygdala tone. And um, what that does, that hypervigilance, it changes your neurochemistry to a point where it's actually damaging your brain. And that's what a lot of our PTSD is, right? I mean, there's a lot of head injuries, so that's setting your brain up for failure right there. But that hypervigilant has a cost on it. And all of the entheogens decrease amygdala tone. And most of them, like the big ones, are like uh, like DMT, 5-amino DMT, psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, and ibogaine, they decrease amygdala tone by like 90%. Does it stay? Does that decrease in tone stay? And the difference between them is the duration. So um, as I went through that scale, that was shortest acting to longest acting. So the, one of the reasons ibogaine is so successful for the special forces community, you know, they're supermen, they went the hardest, fastest, most dramatic thing they can possibly take. Um, and then that gives you insight and... Uh, I mean, it sounds like your audience has already talked about it and heard about it, but you know, it gives you insight to a way to see yourself without judging yourself. And it gives you some opportunities to see maybe some things in your life you'd like to change. But then you come out of there with 90% less stress than you've had probably since you were a kid. And you have the stuff to work on. Like you have the, it doesn't even take courage now, right? I mean, a little bit mm -hmm. of courage, but like you, like you got most of the stress out of the way, most of the anxiety, like way easier to do that work. And I began can last up to nine months because that it, it's in your fat. It, it's so fat soluble. It's in your subcutaneous fat. And if you do like some light zone two every day, you're kind of microdosing Ibogaine. And now if you use that work to do other things, to help you control your stress, you can possibly prevent it from coming back up. So like, um, you know, things like Kundalini yoga and like heavy breath work, those actually release DMT. All right. And again, that's decreasing anxiety. I had no idea. Um, but you know, things like breath work, you know, just regular box breathing like that decreases amygdala and that decreases stress hormones and, um, you know, meditation, any type of mindfulness training, right? All of that stuff is meant to, like if it's increasing heart rate variability, it's decreasing stress. That's essentially what it is. You can think of that. Those two are go hand in hand. Very few people are parasympathetic dominant. Almost everybody is sympathetic dominant. And heart rate variability is basically a balance of those two. So when those two are balanced, high heart rate variability. So anything you can do that's gonna decrease stress, well, you're coming out of it, you're coming out of psilocybin, you have two or three months, you know, ayahuasca, you have four, six months, something like that. And then Ibogaine, you have like six to nine months to kind of, before all that's gonna be out of your system. And so you get a chance to do a lot of work. However, if you think that the drug did the work for you, you're wrong <laughs> because it is gonna go away. And if you don't make any changes, during that period, then no changes are going to be made. There's That's no, interesting. So no, essentially it provides you with space to actually be calm and clear enough to execute right. off of whatever right. the dark side uh, well, is we have a happening. Really, we have a really hard time. I mean, no matter how balanced you are, um, every like every thought you have, everything you think you know or think you kind of know or, or somewhat sure that you know, that's all based on thousands of presuppositions that go back your entire life, right? And you can't possibly untangle all of that um, because every, literally every single thing you know could be wrong. That's not a far, that's not even a far-fetched idea. It's, it's probably the more probable idea. It's like everything you think you know is probably wrong. 10 years, 
50 years from now, everybody will be like, can't believe anybody thought that, right? Um, but we're attached to it because that's how we know who we are is by what we know and what our experiences are. And like, if we don't understand how the world works at all, like how anxiety provoking is that? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it's like being a two year old kid and ending up standing next to a freeway. Like you have no idea what's going on or how to get out of that. So that's how you feel if you don't have any idea how the world works. But what the, what these things do is they're not saying, Hey, we're going to remove everything you know about the world. We're just going to say, let's get your ego out of it so that you're willing to accept the idea that everything you know might be wrong. And you can look back on yourself in a non-judgmental non sort of way while you're under these sort of heroic doses of these things and you're, you're dissociated kind of from your ego. And you can, look, you can look back and think about things and feel about things that you wouldn't be able to think of otherwise. Like your your protection would go up in front of it because you're protecting your identity, right? The ego is a good thing. Like you can't get anything done without the ego, but excessive ego gets in the way of growth. And so you need to be able to drop that and say, well, I've always thought this. Like since I was three years old, I've believed this. But when I look back on my life while under the influence and not having my ego on me, I can look back and go, that was dysfunctional there, that was dysfunctional there, that was dysfunctional there. So maybe I had to reconsider that. Well, that could be... That could be a huge body of work, right? That could be something that takes you years of your life to kind of untangle. But you would have never seen it without the drugs. And you definitely would have never had the opportunity to have so little anxiety and be so open-minded towards it. Um, and something like MDMA, like you're only lasting hours, something like ketamine, you're lasting days, you know. Can it be done? You said that it can't be done without the drug. Do you believe it? Or is there some, is it just accessing a different part of the brain that potentially wouldn't be able to be leveraged otherwise? Well, I, I mean, I think you can do it without the drug, but it's very unlikely that you're going to do it without the drug, um, especially... Like, you know, a seal was a seal for 20 years, but he was also somebody who was be going to become a year seal for 20 years before that. So now he's 45 and like all of his life, essentially, he's been thinking and acting that way. So that there's a lot to move out of the way. Right. Um, and having been sort of at the pinnacle of a career, like being so successful and such a small percentage of the people actually get to that level of success and you, you climbed that mountain and you've gotten there. It's really hard to say, well, everything I thought was wrong and that was all crap. Like how you, like, how do you, how do you marry that with saying, I'm going to do everything completely opposite than I've ever done and expect to keep succeeding. Like, nobody's going to buy that. But what I think what the psychedelics do is they allow you to, accept that possibility and be like, hey, probably a lot of what I'm thinking is wrong mm. <laughs> or what I thought was wrong. So I, th I think it's an easier way to get there. Um, but <laughs> I've seen people that are just, uh, so Kundalini yoga is like a vigorous yoga that has breath work in it, but people can do it with just breath work. But in, in talk, and I'm not talking about something simple like box breathing. It's like a lot of hyperventilation, a lot of deep, you know, hype. Uh, hypoxic holds and all this stuff. And there's rhythms and techniques to all of it. Um, and again, that's secreting DMT in your brain. And so that's having kind of that psychedelic effect. So is so that you're really saying it's different? still very difficult <laughs> like, though. Is, but yeah. at, at that point, you're kind of using the same drug that you were taking because by and large, uh, I mean, there's other things involved, but psilocybin, ayahuasca, ibogaine, 
those all increase DMT in the brain drastically. And that's what the hallucinogenic aspect of it is. And so you can, you like, you can do anything. What people can do is amazing. But um, like, if you want, if you want sort of a, a pre-built pathway uh, and something that you're more likely to succeed with, I think those are, those are really good tools. Uh, it's just, I'm just always uh, cautious to emphasize to people like how, that is just a tool, right? It it's, tool. it's no different than saying, hey, I'm going to give you testosterone and your life's going to change. Like, no, I'm going to give you testosterone and you have the opportunity to change your life, right? A little, like I'm going to give you more resources to make the changes you need to make. And that's what, and that's what the psychedelics and theogens do. That's really interesting. Do you think that it affects the military community differently? And I, I guess the bigger question is, there, it's not the same, right? I, I mean, humans are the same, but again, like what you said, is that group of individuals are asked to do things that normal humans um, are not right. asked to do. And so when you remove the ego part of it, do you think that it's even more difficult for them to be able to work through or accept them, <clears throat> say, you know, you see ayahuasca clinics, you know, like trips all over, but right. I almost feel as if it would probably help them the most, but this is probably the most difficult group to really yeah. crack open. <clears throat> so like I, one of the things I've always tried to do with every modality that came along, so was neurofeedback, biofeedback, transcranial magnet, transcranial ultrasound, psychedelics, uh, hyperbarics, whatever, like, if it was, if it's a, like, I always go learn a lot about it. And if it's appropriate, I'll do it myself and see like, like, do I think my community would accept this? Because, you know, the, the psychedelics can be anything from something super clinical, like, uh, you know, the, the group vets, you know, that has that, that Ibogaine program down in Mexico. Uh, well, that's run by Stanford physicians. And it's like, it's a clinic, man. You go in there, you're taking a pill, it's weighed and measured, and it's like a dose and you're in a heart rate monitor. And there's not a lot of spiritual woo woo stuff, but you do something like ayahuasca and you have a shaman in there and they're shaking chicken bones and they're going in and doing crystal bowls and a lot of ritualization. Um, I think it matters the setting that you're in. Um, but I, in my experience in messing around with the stuff and talking to a lot of seals and recommending treatments for a lot of seals or not recommending it. I don't want to say that, but advising and educating them on this consulting, consulting on this. Um, they, uh, what I find is that if you do it with your guys, whatever else is going on is kind of irrelevant because one thing that the guys are good at is adapting to an environment, right? It's just like, we can all adapt because we're all here. And like the safety's here. Like we, like we're totally cool with all of that. Right. Um, and then it also takes your mind off of you because that's the community. Like you care more about that guy than you do yourself. You're more protective of him than you are yourself. Like that's just the way that works. And so it changes the dynamic of the experience. And, and I've done it without team guys there. I've done it with team guys there and it's night and day different. Um, the, but I'd say the, there's a couple of issues. So one of the big issues, you know, that these are like the Vikings that are guarding the gate and that's all they've ever done. That's what they do. Um, the idea of being vulnerable is ridiculous to them. Why would you be vulnerable? Like that's when you're going to get killed. That's when you're going to fail at your job. You're never going to be vulnerable. <clears throat> Even with your boys, like 
you know each other's vulnerable, but you're doing it like in a joking, picking sort of way and giving each other a little harassment, but nobody's sitting there really admitting any kind of vulnerability or weaknesses or, or uh, fears or anything like that. So the community is just designed that way because you have to be self-sufficient. Like you have to be, you have to be really confident and proficient at what you do. Um, and what that requires is almost no vulnerability, right? Like you, you have to be, you know, the closest thing to bulletproof that you can be. So that's hard for the community to accept. And that's not just SEALs, but that's, I think SEALs are an extreme example of that, but any special forces guys, any military guys, and probably any first responder and any law enforcement and probably any UFC fighter and like, you know, kind of that, that kind of guy. A certain archetype. A certain archetype. Yeah. Um, so you're always, you're always going to have that issue. But what I didn't appreciate with the SEAL teams, we never really finished that backstory, but um, the sleep helped a lot, but something I didn't figure out until about a year before I got out was the TBI issue. So I had patients with TBIs, but the way the military measured TBIs is like, did do you have a known impact that left you unconscious or close to, or mentally altered for a period of time? And did you reach, if you go across that threshold, then you have a TBI. And if you don't go across that threshold, you don't have a TBI. So like, for example, I have a good buddy who is, uh, he was blown up by a grenade. He had a, a frag grenade went off at the toe of his boot, essentially. Um, and he had shrapnel just blast all up through him and it went up through the roof of his mouth and went and hit his optic nerve. He's blind in one eye. And all he has shrapnel in his brain. But, but when he got out of the military, they said he didn't have a TBI. <laughs> what? Like, well, he never lost consciousness. I'm like, he has shrapnel in his brain. Like that's yeah. that's a traumatic brain. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, but then, uh, so I started learning about that. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of him, a guy named Mark Gordon. Of course, he's okay. going to come on the show. Okay, yeah. So I was at a conference and Mark was lecturing on TBI. And I knew I had a couple of TBI patients. And I said, oh, let's go see what I can learn on this. And so I go up there and he starts throwing up his case reports. And it looks identical to all the SEALs I've been treating, right? All the same hormonal dysregulations, the low anabolics, high catabolics, high inflammation, high oxidation, all of that insulin sensitivity, the whole shebang. I mean, identical numbers. So I'm sitting there going, holy smokes. Like I wonder how common this is. Um, and so I go home and I start reading about it and start studying it. Um, and I find an article of JAMA 2008, 2009, I can't remember, uh, eight or nine. Um, and they did uh, DTI, so it's like a super, super high resolution imaging where they could see a single neuronal track breaking in the brain, and that was the threshold for TBI. And they were just figuring out like, how much does it take to get a TBI? Well, it turned out to be something like 1.09 Gs, and they were getting mild, like that's obviously a very extremely mild, you're not gonna notice a TBI, but they were getting that from the acceleration changes on a roller coaster. And I thought, hmm. We have way worse than that yeah. all day, every day. So then I start digging deeper and deeper and learning about it. And then I learned about the overpressurization injury. And that's what was totally unappreciated. So if, if SEALs were training in this room and they come in the door and you get four guys in this room all shooting, every bullet that comes out is 35 Gs of pressure. Um, like uh, Dev Group's fast boots 
the transit, the average, and this is impact, this isn't blast, but their average impact is 60 Gs. They peak over 100 Gs. So they're on them for hours going 60, 60, 60, with like every wave trap, 60, 60. That's why they have those spring-loaded seats and all that stuff. Um, but then you start looking at the weaponry. You, you Like if you're inside of a Humvee with a 50 cal going, it's like, I think it's either 55 or 65 Gs for every bullet, right? And every time that goes off, a Carl Gustav that, Mm-hmm. The anti-armor weapon, the person shooting it gets 200 Gs. The spotter gets 300 Gs. <clears throat> and so I was at a conference where, you know, we've had, a, like like all the military, we've, we've had suicide epidemic in the last 10 years or so. Um, and we have a fair number of guys now who are shooting themselves through the heart and getting their brains biopsied. I know. I know. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, awful. And... <clears throat> um, <clears throat> Uh, there's a guy that I was a SEAL there, that I was a SEAL with, whose son committed suicide. That way, his son was became a SEAL, and he committed suicide. And, and this so, was after 9-11, right? Yeah. So he it wasn't necessarily deployed in the same way. Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, it's just like, yeah. is it in the training that these head injuries well, are? Well, the training, for sure. But then, you know, depending on how much combat, like that as well. Um, and so with... So he he started looking, you know, because everybody was thinking, well, it's going to be like boxers or it's going to be like football players, and it doesn't turn out to be that way. Um, and in fact, they're kind of having problems like finding a localized brain injury. And then one pathologist, I think, just decided to stain the whole brain or something. Just like, mm. well, let's just see if there's, and just like, okay. And so what he does, when he does this, he finds, uh, tau proteins across the entire brain in every region of the brain and but they're hyper focused in these really linear patterns <clears throat> and then what he kind of figures out over time and then they build a model to prove it so they take a skull and they build a model brain and they everything gets reproduced so the duras there the vessels are there the white matter the gray matter the vesicles like everything is structured exactly different densities for different tissues and they do the best they can possibly do to recreate a brain and then they do a blast and slow motion or high whatever whatever high speed for high speed photography watch so you watch the blast injury go through and it, and it's intuitive after the fact right um like if you've ever seen an explosion you, you see the wave come through and everything moves at a different rate depending on how dense it is, how heavy it is. Right. And so, you know, if it go, if you see it go across a yard or something and well, the car moves, but not the same as the tree and not the same as like what, you know, the trash on the sideway or the, so everything's moving at a different rate. Well, the same thing happens, right? So the blast injury actually goes through your head. It doesn't go around your head. So it goes all the way through you. And so, the dura moves at a different rate than the vessels underneath it, which moves at a different rate than the white matter underneath that, which moves at, or the gray matter underneath that, which moves at a different rate than the white matter, which moves at a different rate than the perivesicles. So, like a, a so it shears everywhere it shears, and you do thousands of these a day for years and years and years, and at all those shear sites, you have that. And so now, once all that once all that protein lays down, that's essentially an inflammatory wall, right? It's like, we're going to block this off. So if inflammation can't get to it, that means repair can't get to it, right? And this it, is different than the CTE, right? Yeah. This and is so it, different it than- looks nothing like CTE because it's the entire brain, whereas like CTE tends, tends to have like a focal coup and counter coup kind of front back where 
what makes sense. Or you're, and, what, and for the listener, the CT is chronic traumatic encephalitis. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, got popularized with football, but uh, pugilists have it as right. well. Um, and so um, the important part of that is that that causes all the neuro dysregulation that we've been talking about. The same as sleep. So if you look at if you look at the symptoms of sort of chronic brain inflammation and chronic sleep deprivation, you can't tell the difference, right? It's like it's the same symptomatology. Wow. So now you have this inflamed brain that has tons of like protective protein shields around it that are preventing blood vessels from going through and they're preventing uh, neurotransmitters from flowing. And like so you you know, it's like atherosclerosis, right? It's like you have all this calcium laid down to prevent the inflammation, but calcium is pathological, right? So the same thing in your brain. And so now you have this broken brain, essentially, or you have this, you have this yeah. damaged organ that you're trying to use to fix that organ, right? Um, and so again, one of the beauty, so hyperbarics does a great job of that. Now, we didn't talk about that earlier, but hyperbarics uh, does a ton of the same neurotropic factors that, uh, that the psychedelics do and that the peptides do. Does it have to be, a, not not to uh, pause you for a second, does it have to be a hard or soft chamber? Does it matter? The only the only valid research right now, and the only, the only real research out there that we know is hard chambers. Um, and you need to breathe O2. So um, the way that works essentially is you have, so the pressure, the pressure creates its own uh, physiologic changes, but, um, so, like, you know, when you watch football and basketball and they have the oxygen mask on the sideline, well, we know they're they're satting 99.6%. Mm -hmm. So they put this mask on high flow, like, okay, 99.7% or something. Okay. Like, like you're not, right? So the only way we, uh, like on the, on the surface of the earth, the only way we're getting oxygen to any tissue in our bodies, it has to be bound to a hemoglobin on a red blood cell, right? So if you don't have a good vascular bed, uh, like a good capillary bed around that, uh, you could lose oxygen supply to that tissue, right? So that's like something like a brain injury or a heart attack, whatever. Like if you don't have good blood supply, you're not getting oxygen there, right? Well, if you have chronic brain inflammation and you're squeezing off vascular supply and you have fluid, a fluid barrier in there, you're having a hard time getting blood supply to that, right? Um, so that region of the brain is going to stay inflamed and it's more likely to decay and necrose. Um, and so you, you have an impaired region of your brain. Now, if you have, um, if, if you do hyperbarics, you can actually crush air bubbles down into the plasma that don't have to be bound to hemoglobin. So now when they get to the end, they just diffuse out and they go into the interstitium. And the more hyperbarics you do, you just flood every region of your brain or every region of your body with oxygen, even if there's no blood supply there. But that leads to an activity and the pressure itself leads to an activity to increase VEGF and BDNF. So you actually grow blood vessels to reach those areas as well. Um, but um, you get so much oxygen into all these tissues that it's essentially as though you have blood supply in it and it's durable, right? It's not durable in that it lasts six months after you're doing it, but while you're doing it, if you're doing treatments every day, um, so five days a week you're doing treatments. Um, that builds up to sort of a maximum concentration around four, four to six weeks. And then you, know, you keep doing it a little while after to 
and this is this is so significant that your vision will actually change. It'll change the shape of your eyeball because you'll dissolve oxygen bubbles into your aqueous Better humor. Better or worse depends on the shape <laughs> of your eye, right? So sign me up. So right, so it's making your eyeball bigger, right? So if your focal point is going past the retina. It'll make your vision better. So like John Wellborn did it. He goes, did you notice when you did hyperbarics that your vision got way better? Hi, like, John. We love John Wellborn. I was like, yeah. no, absolutely. I could not see anything <laughs> after I, I was so myopic after yeah. I got out okay. there. I'm like, I can't see a thing. So it, it depends on like mm. what you, the shape of your eyeball, but it, it can improve your vision. It can make it worse. Um, but it's temporary. Like the oxygen will, will eventually get consumed. Um, but the the point of all that is you're getting oxygen everywhere and you're, you're when you're getting oxygen oxygen anywhere, then you're increasing mitochondrial function and all that, and you're increasing the the metabolism of that tissue, and then you're increasing uh, like with the uh, with the hyperbarics, you're increasing also the like I said the the neurotropic factors and neovascularization, and so you get great great brain repair from that. You don't get the decrease amygdala tone that you get from the psychedelics and the peptides that increase nootropic factors um, don't give you the oxygen and they don't so give you the amygdala. So like, mm -hmm. I think all of those combined um, seems to be like, what's the magic, magic combination? I have no idea. Like I have no idea, but um, all that works. But anyway, the, my point was the only research that works or the only research that's been proven is that in order to dissolve enough oxygen into your plasma, well, in order to be able to dissolve oxygen into your plasma at all, you have to be way deeper than 1.3 ATA, which is all the soft chambers will do. Um, so it looks like a minimum probably of two ATA, anywhere from, and that's atmospheres total. So uh, um, we're sitting at one atmosphere. So we have like a column of air from outer space on top of us, that's one atmosphere. And then you go down 33 feet of seawater and that's one more atmosphere and 66 feet is two. Um, so at 33 feet of depth, you have two atmospheres on you. So that's that's two ATA. Um, it looks like that's probably the minimum for like, and somewhere probably around 2.8, 2.5 to 2.8 is probably ideal. And then breathing 100% oxygen so that you have, um, you're increasing. So what, as we're sitting here right now, we have obviously 20% oxygen in the air. Um, so that's the the partial pressure in our lungs and our, our tissues is 20%. Like that, but if I start breathing 100% oxygen, it's still 20% because I can't saturate hemoglobin anymore. But if I go down to two atmospheres, and now I breathe 100% oxygen. I diffuse all that oxygen into my into my bloodstream. So you have to have the O2, and you have to have the pressure. Mm. Um, so the hard chambers are the only thing that work. And one of the projects I'm working on right now is mobile hard chambers, because we have it's it's proven so beneficial for guys. But clinics aren't everywhere, and clinic is a big investment, um, and they're not going to be everywhere. And guys get out of the military and they go everywhere. Uh, and then there's also a huge time suck for them, right? So um, even a one hour dive, which is sort of the minimum uh, time in a chamber would be an hour. That takes an hour and a half because it's, you know, 15 yeah. minutes to get down and then nine minutes to get up. So you have an hour on the bottom. So like you're already there, but then if you're changing clothes to get into it and all that. And if you go to like a true clinic, then they're gonna take your vitals and they're gonna put you in a gown. They're gonna like all that stuff. And then you, whatever, you have an hour drive there, an hour drive, and like, that's half your day. So I have this idea of like, 
putting chambers in like air conditioned trailers and you just drive them to somebody's house and you teach them how to operate it and you say, come get it and you can come pick us up in eight weeks, knock yourself out, get as much <laughs> as you can get done, right? Um, yeah, so that that's kind of a, a big passion on them. And I don't have the business sense or capital to do that. So I'm talking to, I'm, you know, haranguing all the people around me who I know have the money and interest and capability to do that and to trying to develop that. And then we can treat vets all over the country. You get enough of those. And if they aren't being used, you drop them off at somebody's clinic who's thinking about doing hyperbarics and you say, Hey, we'll put this in a parking lot for a month and you pay us and you can test it out and see if you want to do hyperbarics. And if you do, we can install a chamber. And if not, you can maybe you can buy one of these chambers or whatever. Right. I so, like yeah. So like probably somebody's going to take that idea and run with it. That <laughs> care. Like I'm, I'm looking to get the guys treated. That's what I do. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kirk Parsley, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I have to say, I have so much respect for you and what you are doing for the community. And it really means a lot to thank you. everybody. I feel the same way about you. So. I mean, it, you're, you're really well, highly regarded in the teams and SFF really values you. I know, and we have a lot of work to do, but it's all, it's all good stuff, fun stuff. And I will include where everyone can find you. Okay. Any um, any other things that you want to highlight that you are working on that you have? I know you have a newsletter. You do have a, a supplement. You have yeah. um, a private practice, which you're probably not accepting patients for. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is there anything? No, I mean, I, um, you know, as far as like what's valuable for the audience, I would, um, you know, I I would say if they're not sleeping well already, like that would be the primary reason to go to my website, you know, like, um, uh, like, um, yeah, we, we talked about said, so like doing a lander or people. So I, I think the most, the most value. So th this is ironic, right? Um, you and I talk all the time. So, you know, like the, the scope of what I do with patients is the same with you. It's like essentially everything, you know, everything except, um, primary care medicine. Right? It's like, <laughs> hey, um, if you guys have pneumonia, stop calling us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually the most powerful, and like, you, and I'm talking about, uh, you know, you know, nutrition, exercise, stress mitigation, pharmaceuticals, hormones, peptides, HBOT, entheogens, all of that, the most powerful thing I do is get people to sleep better, right? That literally is. And I know that sounds self-serving, but it's just true. Um, um, I used to teach there's, there's four pillars of health, sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation. I say, no, there's three pillars that sit on the foundation of sleep, because if you aren't sleeping, none of that other stuff is working right, right? Um, even your fuel partitioning changes when you don't sleep well, right? And your, your appetite changes when you don't sleep well. Your exercise tolerance changes, like what's beneficial to exercise how much exercise is beneficial changes on just by how much you sleep, right? And then how much stress you have to mitigate changes by how well you sleep. So um, the most powerful thing I do is this really ridiculous that it's telling you about. That's a PDF we could send to your audience to. Um, and we'll just do your name, right? DocParsley.com forward slash Gabrielle. Perfect. But fine. You want to do that? Or we can do something cooler if well, you want. We'll do Lion. So Lion. Can find okay. A Y-O-N, guys. Okay. Let's yeah. do that. Um, and... Uh, and basically it teaches you how to get stress out of your sleep. That's the number one reason people don't sleep well. Well, the number one reason people don't sleep well is they don't value it, but- No, it, I think it's because of children. It, well- I have that, a that, almost four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I will that, tell you. <laughs> that, that's, 
unquestionably true for for parents for and actually the research has done you lose 25 percent of your sleep for the first two years of your child's life accurate yeah what about the other my daughter is four and she's still not letting us sleep. i did i did the same thing i did i had, I had three kids two years apart so i was like no sleep <laughs> No sleep. Like as soon as that one was running out there, and, uh, 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 um, and so, uh, so I lost, you know, whatever I lost. Uh, Seventy-five years of your life. Yeah, Just kidding. yeah. Um, so I this PDF seems so simple. It's basically making some lists, making some agreements to yourself that like this is, uh, you know, so it a really short Reader's Digest version of it. We talked about what happens when you sleep. We didn't go into great detail, but basically you're gonna repair and prepare. Like everything's gonna be reset. And the most capable you will be in any 24 hour period is right after you've woken up. Like once you're really awake. So after some bright light and whatever, and your Two cat, shots of espresso, your coffee and, a cup of and all coffee, that. Maybe a piece of nicotine gum, yeah. you're ready now, to go. Now yeah. you're gonna, so like 30 minutes, an hour after you wake up, that's the best you're ever gonna be. It's the best problem solving skills, the best emotional control you're gonna have, like the best, Every all cognitive function, physical, that's max, right? So why not handle the most important, most stressful, hardest things in your day right after that, right? But if you sleep poorly, the worst you're gonna be is the first two or three hours after you wake up. So now you have to kind of rearrange your day to kind of try to do all that stressful stuff later in the day, and now you're gonna have consequences for the tonight's sleep. And so it's, it's basically this protocol where, you know, you you, you basically convince yourself that sleep is the most important thing and that you're and that everything that you need to handle should be handled after you've gotten a good night's sleep and then you make a list of all the things you need to handle and all the things you need to worry about even if you can't control them you don't want to forget to worry um you have an alarm <laughs> clock that says time to get ready for bed and you have an alarm clock that says time to wake up and I, and there's like some relaxation techniques and breath and some cog you know some behavioral psych kind of stuff in there and it's this really simple four six page worksheet or something you do that and that's that's the most that's the most powerful thing i do uh, okay. everything i all do right. all my patients go oh my god this is like <laughs> <laughs> like i should just sell that like i <laughs> i should make a real long book and just put that in the last few perfect, pages and, perfect yeah, yeah i know that the audience will really really appreciate it so we'll yeah. put it out there we'll put it in the newsletter yeah and uh thank you so much you're welcome thanks for having me <laughs> The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.